to start out, can you just talk a little bit about uh, your trip to China? And I believe you said that was in 2002? Correct. Um, I led a delegation of uh, 15 technical communicators and four guests for a 10-day visit to the People's Republic of China back in October 2002. And this trip was part of a people-to-people delegation, or series of delegations, actually, that the People's Republic had set up with the assistance of IEEE, that's the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. What uh, the Chinese had requested was that people-to-people establish one delegation from each of the IEEE societies. There are about 40 IEEE societies, one of which is the Professional Communication Society. And at the time, I was the president of that society, and so I was asked to lead the delegation. And our delegation consisted of uh, 14 others besides myself uh, from pretty much all over the country, as well as one representative from Canada. And we visited three cities in China, Beijing, Shanghai, and a small provincial city called Guilin. And we spent about three days in each place. And as a part of our uh, tour, we met with professional delegations from each of those cities uh, consisting of uh, a mix of academics and professional society representatives as well as uh, folks in industry in those places. And so we got a pretty good overview of what's going on in technical communication at that time in China as well as you know what we think is going to be happening uh, into the future. Were there any big things that surprised you or things that stood out about the state of the profession in China right now? Well, of course, we weren't the first group to go. So uh, it wasn't as though we were completely in the dark about what things uh, were like there in terms of the technical and professional communication professions. There had been an earlier people-to-people delegation consisting mostly of academics uh, back in 1997, I believe it was. And that delegation had found that there was a great deal of interest in technical communication, but really very little going on in terms of either teaching or practicing technical communication at that time. Uh, Subsequent to that trip, uh, there were several uh, academic uh, visitors to China who had been involved in doing some in-service type workshops for uh, teachers as well as others in China. Mostly what we found uh, pretty well substantiated what the earlier groups had found, and that was technical communication as we know it is virtually unknown in China today, with some minor exceptions. Mostly what exists is scientists and engineers who are communicating as a part of their job responsibilities, as we would expect. They're writing reports, they're writing journal articles and books. And then there are also a large number of people who are what we would call science writers. Uh, They're people who are essentially journalists who are writing about science for the mass media and for rather unsophisticated audiences, so essentially for the general public. And they're really 
was very little that we found that was technical communication as we in the U.S. and Western Europe would recognize it. Uh, that is, people working for companies or for clients writing user documentation, for example, for software. Uh, very little of that. We did find some, uh, particularly in Beijing. Uh, essentially, that side of our profession is, is relatively unknown. On that note, then, do you see that changing uh, in the near future, or is that something that uh, there's they're interested in developing, or I guess kind of what's their take on that? Well, I think it's already beginning to change. It's already changed, uh, actually. One of the members of our delegation, Melanie Flanders, uh, who was living in Houston at that time, has actually moved to China. Uh, she's been there about two years now and ha has started working as a technical communicator doing software documentation in China. And she has worked uh, thus far for a Taiwanese company in a small city called Nanjing and uh, has recently started work for a U.S. company and will be moving to Beijing uh, to pursue that job. That is something that is relatively little known. I think it's becoming more common in that Chinese companies are beginning to recognize the need for hardware and software user documentation as they begin to market their products in the West. It is not something that they have put much emphasis on in terms of selling their products within China. But as they look outside their borders, beyond their borders for markets, I think it is going to become increasingly more common. But it's still very early. And that leads me kind of to another question. You know, in China, in the IT industry in general, uh, there's a lot more uh, software piracy issues than, than probably we experience over here. Do you think that that will help the IT industry or China? What I would say is that we saw lots of examples of both legitimate software and other products and pirated software and other products while we were there. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole approach to copyright is very different in China than it is in the West. Right. And I, I think it probably has a great deal to do with imitating what is admired mm -hmm. and probably less to do with law than we in the West would, would practice, I guess right. is, is the best, <laughs> okay. best term for it. You mentioned one case already of, of uh, one of your colleagues actually uh, moving over to China uh, and helping out, uh, kind of getting tech writing off the ground. Is that something you think we'll see a lot more of? Are there going to be a lot more opportunities for uh, people from other countries uh, to move to China and help them get that industry kind of off the ground? I think there will be opportunities. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much opportunity there will be. It's it's really very early in the game to. Uh, to predict. My guess is that it's going to take a long while for Chinese companies to uh, recruit enough fluent English speakers and writers in their country to acquire the knowledge of technical communication as a discipline as we know it in order to write documentation in Chinese that could be translated mm 
-hmm. My guess is that they are going to likely need to outsource that task to other companies or to contractors. And so there is probably going to be some opportunity there. Naturally, the folks who need to do the translating really are native speakers of English who know Chinese. And there are very, very few of those, I dare say, among the ranks of technical communicators in the United States or elsewhere for that matter. So if if someone were looking to do that kind of work, they would do well to learn Chinese to be able to do that translation. Failing that, there there is a, a burgeoning, well, burgeoning may be too strong a word, there is a growing uh, trend within China to do translation and localization work. And the problem, of course, is that they're working mostly with uh, native speakers of Chinese. And so the translations that they provide into English or French or German or Spanish or whatever the target language is will be uh, not very good. Uh, Obviously, the best translator is someone who's a native speaker of the target language who also knows the source language. Right. And so native speakers of Chinese are not the best people to do that translation. But if the software itself is being localized into English and uh, translated into English and and its user interface and localized for uh, users in the West, it may not even be necessary to know Chinese to document it. So it's that's that could certainly be work that's outsourced to the United States. We don't usually think about offshoring to the U.S. Right. Uh, but my guess is that is a, a possibility. Make arrangements with Chinese companies to do the translation and localization of the documentation and the user interfaces for that matter. You know, the other thing I want to talk to you a little bit about, too, you, you mentioned you were in Korea last fall as well. Can you talk a little bit about that trip and what prompted that and, and kind of what sure. you were doing there? Yeah, I was in Korea for a very short visit. I, I left the United States on Sunday afternoon. I arrived in Korea in Seoul on Monday night. I attended meetings Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday morning I was back on the plane, uh, arriving back in Atlanta on uh Friday morning. Uh, so I was actually only in Korea a little more than uh, three days. Mm-hmm. But during that visit, I did meet some members of the new STC chapter in uh, Korea, the Korea chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there for a meeting of the ISO standards uh, group that I am a member of uh, working on a set of standards for software user documentation. And uh, so that was the reason for the meeting in Korea. Uh, I found the trip to be very interesting. Uh, I discovered that, uh, at least from what I saw of Seoul, the little bit of time I wasn't in hotel meeting rooms, uh, was much more Western than I expected it to be. Probably not surprisingly so, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was uh, amazed that uh, virtually all of the stores that we're accustomed to seeing, uh, the high-end uh, clothing stores, for example, and 
automobile dealers and, and so forth from the U.S. and Western Europe uh, were there, restaurants, chain restaurants uh, as well. Of course, uh, a lot of those things were uh, visible in China as well. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yep. Since uh, Korea has been westernized a whole lot longer than China, it's probably not right. uh, terribly surprising. But uh, it was interesting talking with the Korean chapter uh, STC members there that they are very much being driven by their companies and by their government to improve technical communication in Korea and, you know, especially for Korean hardware and software companies. Uh, one of the big companies that was represented among those members was uh, LG Electronics, mm-hmm. which uh, manufactures lots of computer peripherals, particularly in mobile phones and, and so forth. Right. And uh, both their company and the government are very interested in having the quality of their documentation vetted or attested to. And so they were interested in things such as publication competitions, for example. Uh, They are very interested in starting up a a publications competition in their chapter. They're also very interested in uh, certification, which is something that... uh, STC members in the U.S. run both very hot and very cold about. Every one of the chapter members that I talked to there was very eager to establish a certification program because their companies and the government want to be able to attest to the quality of the products that they're producing. Mm -hmm. For those listeners that might not be aware of that, can you just give a little background on the conversations around certification and and kind of what's been put out there? Sure. About every 10 years or so, (laughs) for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, there has been a movement within STC to establish a certification program somewhat akin to the uh, certifications that are available in engineering or medicine or law. In other words, some body which attests to the basic level of quality of the individual uh, practitioner uh, so that, for example, there might be a test that would be available that would, if passed, uh, allow a technical communicator to uh, advertise him or herself as a certified technical communicator. Uh, This is available within the scientific editing community. Uh, There are certified editors in the life sciences, for example. That's uh, uh, an organization uh, that has responded to that need. That's a very, very specialized group, very small compared Mm -hmm. to STC, just a couple thousand, I would guess, at most. STC has looked at this a couple of times in, in... the last 20 years that I've been a member, and each time there are some individuals who are very interested in it. There are some individuals who could care less about it. And when we ask companies if they're interested in it, the companies say, yeah, they're interested in it, but when asked if they would pay what it would cost to uh, uh, support the program, 
they are not interested in paying for it, uh, nor are the members interested in paying for it. They want someone else to pay for it. Right. Um, to to offer a certification program would be a very expensive proposition, and it might also carry some liability with it. And in the past, STC has shied away for those reasons that there does not seem to be sufficient interest, particularly interested in interest in paying, and that uh, the liability that might be forthcoming from such a program uh, might have a very distinct downside that uh, the society would be reluctant to uh, get involved with. Now, the past year or so, there has been yet another uh, committee that has been looking into certification. I don't know what the status of that is at the moment. I don't believe that they have reported yet on the results of their study so far, and it may it may well be another year before uh, anything is uh, forthcoming from them. There are certainly a number of people who think that certification would help protect jobs from people who are not qualified, mm-hmm. uh, would justify salaries again to you know protect people from being offered too little for the the work that's being done. Uh, how something like that would actually work in practice, though, is uh, not known. I think I think that's a very good foundation there of, of a discussion. So I guess my question for you then is, you know, you said that in Korea they're very interested in it and it seems to be a very active push. What's really driving that? Again, I think it's the government and the companies and because of those two reasons, I think uh, a Korean certification program might actually be doable uh, once the profession is better established there. If indeed the companies and the Korean government are interested in doing something like that, it's more likely that the money required to support that kind of a program would be available. I'm not sure that's going to be true in the U.S. or in Canada or in Western Europe. Kind of a a bigger overall question. Um, You know, STC really is uh, kind of a global organization. Uh, When you talk about having a chapter in Korea now, what are are the kind of things like, you know, like adding a chapter in Korea? How does that change the organization or what does it add to it or or kind of how does the dynamic change of of an organization, organization like STC? Well, STC's had chapters outside of the U.S. for quite a while. I think the first uh, chapters outside of the U.S. were uh, in Canada and in Israel. The Israel chapter is uh, probably 40 years old. So we have had chapters outside the U.S. for quite some time. We are beginning to develop more chapters, and I would guess in the last 10 years or so we've added perhaps a dozen or more chapters outside the U.S. that uh, had not existed before. And I think that's a good thing. It certainly helps those of us who are members of STC who are in North America to understand better that the profession is a global profession. It's changing the organization as well. It's making us more aware that... uh, not just uh, technical communicators in the U.S. who are involved in it. About a year from now, we'll have our first president who is not a North American. 
uh, Mark Clifford from the United mm-hmm. Kingdom. Well, well, he was elected second vice president about a year ago. He'll become first vice president this year and president next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't believe we've had a Canadian president yet. So <laughs> that uh, is a, a great mark of uh, globalization for the organization. But I think we've still got a long way to go. Uh, there, there are far too many members of STC who refer to the society level of the organization as, quote, national. Uh, and it's not that. It's always been an international uh, organization, practically from its founding. Right. So uh, we we do need to kind of adjust our, our, uh, our sights that way. Beyond uh, the STC and its impact there, what do you think, um, you know, the fact that the international community and, and countries like Korea and China are starting to think about this, you know, what kind of impact will that have on the profession as a whole? Oh, I think it will be profound. I'm teaching a course uh, this semester to uh, seniors at Mercer University uh, on global distributed teams in technical communication. And basically what that means is uh, cross-functional teams that are distributed globally. In other words, there will be some members in, in Georgia, for example, and some members perhaps in Europe and some in Asia who will be working together on projects. Uh, I think this is becoming more and more uh, true, not only for people who work for multinational corporations where they are, as a matter of course, interacting with peers from around the world the course of their job duties, but especially for uh, consultants and contractors as well who are involved in teams that are made up of people from various countries. So uh, this is something that uh, I think technical communicators are particularly uh, good at doing. Uh, We have been taking leading roles on cross-functional teams for years. And because of our communication abilities and our uh, uh, team management abilities, I think we're uh, really naturals to to do this kind of work. And the fact that companies are working across national boundaries as a matter of course in uh, developing products for the market, I, I think it's inevitable that we'll all be involved in doing this kind of thing. And are there certain skills or things that you know, technical communicators today should be working to develop that's going to position themselves for uh, for success in that kind of environment? Well, I think uh, one of the things that we need to do is to uh, kind of open our minds to the fact that what we've always thought about in terms of technical communication may not be the way to uh, to proceed. I've always told my students that uh, whenever you're asked a question about technical communication, among the correct answers almost always are two things, purpose and audience. You know, we we joke about that. But Mm -hmm. they are such important factors in technical communication in the West that uh, we pretty much take it for granted that they're uh, among the things that we have to think about. Uh, That may not necessarily be true because not every country's uh, rhetoric is necessarily going to uh, revolve around those two factors that are so important in Western rhetoric. 
so you know we have to begin to think about what the driving forces are in effective communication in different cultures. They may not be purpose and audience. They, they may be other things. Uh, we've got to think about the implications for uh, document design. We think about document design in certain ways uh, in North America and perhaps in Western Europe. Uh, effective document design in Asia may be quite different. It may be very different in one part of Asia than it is from uh, effective document design in another part of Asia. We shouldn't homogenize our view of continents for that matter. There are lots of things that we need to think about as in addition to the obvious uh, linguistic challenge that we have in dealing with people in another country whose first language is something different from ours. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time for me today. Sure. Happy to do it.